0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and I just want to set up this interview because we've been hinting at this, and if you listened to our Black Mamba episode, you would have known that we have a series of interviews coming from these award winners that We're sponsored by the Whitley Fund for Nature. And there's six award winners that Angie and I have been busy the last few weeks, interviewing from all over the world, from South America, Asia, Africa. And these award winners are just all grassroots conservationists. And their stories capture, I think, the essence of our podcast with what we're trying to do, you know, educate the masses on what's going on out there. And then fighting for these animals and each one of these stories just hits you right in the heart these are some amazing people they are true conservation heroes and we really hope you enjoy the interviews so please go to our website allcreaturespod.com you can watch the little two to four minute video snippets narrated by sir david attenborough talking about these heroes talking about the work they're doing, and then enjoy the interviews with them as we go more in depth with the projects they're doing, you know, from, you know, fighting for African elephants to, you know, <laughs> protecting the wetlands of Patagonia to protecting the forests in the Indo-Burma corridor and in Nagaland in India. It's just each one of these conservationists are amazing people. And it just, it goes to show, you know, all the people we interview. I I go back to Dr. Rebecca Cliff, the Sloth Conservation Foundation. She founded that herself after graduate school, like amazing. Then I go to Dr. Julian Fennessy, again, the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. We go to Mike Veal with Global Conservation Force. There are so many people out there fighting for wildlife in our wild spaces. So I know sometimes the news we give in the podcast isn't great. I know, you know, hearing these stories about certain species struggling, heading towards extinction, isn't fun a lot of the time to, to to hear about. But behind each of those animals, there are people like this fighting to preserve them and preserve their native habitats. So that gives us a lot of hope. These are the good stories that we want to be telling We conducted all these interviews over Zoom, so the audio quality was was as good as we can make it because, I mean, again, these are conservationists in the field in some pretty remote regions on the planet. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. This one is, we're we're kicking it off with Dr. Lucy Kemp in South Africa. And as always, it's an honor for both Angie and I to, to speak to these conservation heroes. So enjoy the interview welcome to the all creatures podcast this is chris and today i'm very excited to introduce dr lucy kemp she is the project manager for the mambula ground hornbill project the timing is impeccable we just covered hornbills lucy welcome to the podcast
1: thanks it's awesome to be here
0: yeah and um it's, it's late here in new zealand but uh, afternoon there in south africa correct
1: afternoon but still chilly we we deep we're diving deep into winter at the moment i know
0: That's <laughs> in the southern hemisphere it's, it's chilly <laughs> everybody in the northern hemisphere is enjoying spring and summer so i guess my first question where in south africa are you located right now
1: I am extremely lucky. I live on a, a small game reserve called Mabula Game Reserve, um, which is in the Limpopo province. So it's about two hours north of Johannesburg. Um, so I get to do my job because I have a Wi-Fi connection and I get to live in the bush, which is my happy place. So yeah, that's where we're based. But we work, we work across the entire country wherever our birds occur.
0: Oh, obviously. Yeah, 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 no, that's amazing. Well, my first question I always like to ask is your background how you got involved in conservation, you know, maybe a little bit on your education. We, we have a lot of young listeners to the podcast that are very interested in careers in conservation. So it's always exciting to hear your story about how you got started.
1: <laughs> sure. Um, my story is accidental. Um, my my parents did all the early research on ground handles, um in Kruger National Park. Uh, nothing was known about these big birds and So, yeah, my dad worked at the museum in Pretoria, and so every school holiday, especially Christmas holidays, coincided with ground hornbill breeding season. And so we were taken on these field trips and acted as unpaid research assistants. Um, But I think spending that much time in such an incredibly big open wild space like our Kruger National Park, which is our biggest national park, I am definitely instilled something in me, A, the need to be in the bush and to have wild places and wild creatures around me, um, but also some feeling of responsibility about it, um, some feeling of needing to do something um, to make sure that I can keep this for other people to enjoy. You know, I think, so so I think it's a selfish need. Um, I I just need to be surrounded by wild places and wild things. Um, But I, you know, I think if COVID's taught us anything is that's probably a very deeply inherent human thing i think we all need that um so so i went through that route um, but because dad was doing birds i tried my best not to do birds um, so i studied marine biology um and then i yeah so i worked on otters i worked on artisanal fisheries and then i moved to namibia and i worked on black rhinos and high value plant species as an alternative to ecotourism trying to find ways of how wildlife can pay for itself without it necessarily having to be shot or sold. Um, so that really instilled in me the, you know, the need to involve people in conservation because I think most species, if we just leave them alone, they'll fix themselves. It's it's really the people component that we've got to try and support and and fix. And so, so that sort of started the community bug. Um, and then, yeah, I just, I don't know, accidentally found myself back in, birds, and in particular, ground Hornbills. So it it was accidental. Um, I didn't plan to be here. Um, But it's been an incredible journey, just keeping learning about these birds and learning about the people who share the landscape with them.
0: It's an amazing story. And those are some big shoes to fill, right? Your parents? Like, wow
1: size 12 to be exact (laughs) (laughs) Um, um it is um but i think also at that stage you know it was just academic interest it was just a really interesting bird and in just you know our one half generation you know from them to me um the bird is now endangered and sliding to critically endangered so it's no longer a really cool animal to study because because it's cool and interesting to study. You know, we need to figure stuff out for them. Otherwise, you know, they're not going to be around for other generations to to have around, to be interested in.
0: No, it is interesting. And uh, I I have to acknowledge that the uh, Whitley Fund for Nature, who just recently had six awards given and and Lucy was one of them, uh, put us in contact. And we'll talk a little bit about the project she's going to work on with them in a minute. But the... Southern ground hornbill. I, I, You just said they're in decline. What is their status? What is happening to them out there across Africa?
1: So it's kind of twofold. Um, you know, they're big birds, they're slow breeding, you know, they've got all of the life history traits that puts them in trouble anyway. Um, and then you couple that with all of the human threats that are being thrown at them left, right, and center. They're just can't keep up. Um, So some of the big ones in South Africa are poisoning. We still have farmers putting out poisoned bait for jackals and hyenas and so-called pest species. Um, And, you know, a whole group of ground hornballs, a family unit, will move through the bush looking for food, scavenging, and they will find one of these poison bait items and the whole group will feed off it. And so we're not just losing individual birds, but we're losing entire breeding units. Um, And, you know, so there's that. There's the threat of lead toxicosis. From spent lead ammunition. And in the States and Europe, that's a very well-recognized issue and problem. Um, but in South Africa, we're really starting from a you know zero baseline, trying to get awareness up and going. And you know, these are the threats that that the birds are facing, electrocution on transformer boxes. Uh, They are highly territorial, so every time they see their reflection um, in a shiny surface, a window, a shiny car, your windscreen, uh, their their immediate response is to fight. Whichever enemy has come into their territory, it's going to steal their wife, steal their nest. Mm -hmm. And so they really have to try, you know, they want to fight that enemy. And that leads to human conflict wildlife. And, you know, even the most conservation-minded farmer is going to, you know, after replacing all of the windows in his house for the fifth time in a year, is going to say, that's enough i can't deal with this it's expensive um you know and it's just these threats are just piling up on top of each other um and then there's you know the natural things lead um newcastle's disease avian influenza so yeah they've got a lot going on um and so we've got to try and and fix these things at, at every level
0: so when you see like a half generation with like 10 years 20 years it's
1: I, we think they live until 70. Okay. Um. So, yeah. So, so we, we're looking at about the last 20 to 30 years. There's been a be,
0: steep decline, just a steep decline. Now, yeah, yeah. you know, we covered the great hornbill, which is in Asia. So it is different. Are these more omnivorous? Are they more going after meat and stuff where the, the great hornbill and the others are more fruitivores? What's the diet of these, these birds?
1: Well, I think the Groundholm bulls should be called the great, because they yes. are the greatest. <laughs> just to sneak that, that in. Um, but no, so we, we call them fornivorous. Um, so they eat the whole animal. So they don't just eat meat. Um, they basically eat whatever they can catch and swallow in one one go. They will hunt together. So if it's something like a hare or a big tortoise, they'll work together. Um, but yeah, fornivorous, they don't drink any water, they get all of their moisture from the food that they eat. Um, but then they will uh, pick up peanuts or pecanuts, you know, so they, they, they're they opportunistic fornivores I guess, is probably the best way of describing them.
0: Right. And, and don't these birds have like a, a big cultural significance to Africa? Because I was reading they're called thunderbirds, rainbirds. Can you kind of talk about that?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, they they a big obvious bird in the landscape. They stand about a meter tall, that huge red face, the giant dagger stuck on the front of their face. Um, you know, they're obvious. And and people have been living with them for millennia and kind of started to associate them with the coming of the first good rains of the season. We have summer rainfall here. Um, and, you know, so that's at the end of a long, dry winter. Um, and they won't breed unless it's going to be a good rainy season. Um, And so people have recognized that when ground hornbills are calling throughout the day, that is when they're going to go down and breed, and they're only going to breed when there's good rains. So this is how this mythology about the rainbird, the thunderbird has come about. Um, And, and, you know, if you're a subsistence farmer, you really want to know if it's going to be a good year. And and we've spoken to people in Mozambique who are saying, you know, with a a shifting climate and without ground hornbills, we actually don't know when to tend our fields Um, because, you know, the climate's all over the place and they're really missing them as the sort of predictive of rains the, the, the you know the, the the bird that tells them when it's time to prepare for the big rains um and so that's you know there's a lot of good mythology based with that but then ground humble is also a big quite scary looking bird they eat meat they eat snakes they eat highly venomous snakes um which is great if you live in the bush um my partner was bitten by mozambique spitting cobra this last december Oh. December, so I'm the latest onto the list of super stoked for things that eat venomous snakes. Yes. Um, but you know that that you know that that support of having something around that will eat those big snakes has also ende- endeared them to people. Um and you know, over time a bunch of other mythologies have developed and they are important. They're recognizable and they are very, very much a part of the the rural African landscape, sub-Saharan African landscape.
0: Now you did say some of was interesting earlier too was the breeding units because these birds have kind of a different, I would say breeding reproductive strategy than the other hornbills, the lesser great hornbill. You, can you kind of explain for our listeners what I guess <laughs> what the difference is? Because it, I, I was reading about it and I found it fascinating that it, it's not just a male and female pair, right? They actually have helpers. Is that true?
1: Yeah, so ground hornbills are the largest cooperative breeding um, bird species in the world, and that means only the alpha pair does the breeding. So there's there's the king and the queen essentially, and all of the other birds in the group are there simply to help them. So and they're mostly males and their their job is to provision for the female, bring food for her, bring food for her chick, defend the territory. Um, And so even when you see a group of 12, nine, you know, these big groups that we see in some of our wild areas, that's still just one breeding female per group. Um, And so, you know, if you're looking in sort of a national context, we're down to 600 groups, which is essentially just 600 breeding females. And the females can't, breed without their army or, or their network of boys to keep them going. Um, so there's that. And then the other difference with ground hornbills is they don't seal themselves, they don't seal the female into the nest hollow. So all of the other hornbill species, the female is sealed in with mud um, and and she molts all of her feathers during the breeding cycle. And then she comes out with the chick when it's ready to fledge. Ground hornbills are they also nest in nest hollows, um, but they don't go through that elaborate um, sort of sealing and process. So they are more primitive hornbill. Um, so, you know, if you, if you look at the evolution of, of hornbills, ground hornbills, nest sealing came, came later.
0: Right, right. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. So, you know, looking at them from a conservation standpoint, if they lose some of those males or I mean, all of those males, I mean, she's not going to reproduce, right? Or you're not going to get a clutch successfully reared.
1: Absolutely. Um, but then there's an additional <laughs> level of trickery yeah. to these guys is that the youngsters need the whole group to learn all of their bush survival skills. Um, so if you remove the experienced birds from the group, even if it's not the breeding female, um, there's no one to teach the youngsters how to kill that black mamba or that cobra, how to kill the puff adder, how to avoid predation from caracal, from leopard, from cheetah. Um, and so what we're finding is without that support network of experienced men mentors, they're really very vulnerable to predation and any number of other things going wrong. Um, For the first five years of their life, they need Okay, let me rephrase this for the males for the first five years of their life. They need this constant guidance and support. Whereas the young females are kicked out of the group when they're less than a year old and they have to go it alone. Um, and they just kind of subsist in amongst these groups um, and wait until they sexually mature, which can be anything from eight to 10 years, when they themselves can take the breeding position in a group.
0: Now, are you having success breeding them under human care or in captivity? Has that been challenging?
1: Uh, no, so that's that seems to be working really well. Um, it's just a case of they so long lived and produced so slowly that we're wondering if that's actually a worthwhile strategy going forward. You know, I think a lot of the captive care and rearing is much better for smaller, faster producing species. Um, but what we can do is they lay a second egg, which is uh, like an insurance egg, so they have obligate brood reduction, mm-hmm. which means the second hatch check is the one that dies unless there's something wrong with the first one, in which case the parents will rear the second one. And so there's a source, the stock of ground hornbills that would die naturally in the nest. And we've been using those artificially rearing them and using them as the stock for a reintroduction program.
0: That's amazing. It just I, All of this is hearkening back to the California condor project. Totally. Yeah. We've, we've covered them a couple of years, a couple of years ago and I was at the LA zoo and talking to people at the San Diego zoo that were involved with that. The lo- the lead for one was was a big uh, reducer in in condors, but then the the, the hand rearing. So are you doing the puppet stuff that they've learned from that, like. <laughs>
1: No, we're not. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, we we, we we rely on San Diego a lot for support and advice. Um, you know, we definitely, between condors and African wild dogs, I think those are probably the two most similar species to what we're trying to do here. Um, so, no, we don't We do not do the puppets. We did in the past, um, but we don't need to anymore. Um, we've built a specialized rearing center called the Baobab Conservation Rearing Center, um, where the, the birds really only interact with captive foster families. Um, and so from when they brought into the artificial nests in the structure they only see here and interact with ground hornbills and the humans are simply a pair of tweezers and some food that comes and goes um, but all of their attention is on the outside foster group they fledge into those groups and from there we make up the new bush schools where they will then go out to learn their skills and again we have to form these things that we call bush schools um, to enable these really stupid youngsters um, to learn the skills that they need to survive. So it's taken us a long time to figure out what can work. We have certainly know what doesn't work, um, but, you know, it's working. Uh, we had 75% of our reintroduced groups uh, laying eggs successfully this past season. So we've jumped those hurdles. We've had reintroduced groups breeding um, and and natural dispersals then from those groups. So we know it works. It's really just a case for us of trying to get enough funding to scale this m- model so that we can actually do something sensible for the population numbers.
0: Right. And then how often do they naturally breed? Cause it's not every year, right? It, it's, it, there's a, there's a gap.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're a bit like us. I mean, we don't want to churn children out every year. If we live until we're 70, yes, we'll yes. die of exhaustion. <laughs> um, so, you know, so so they, they breed on average every three or four years. Um, we have some groups, if they lose their nest within the territory or they lose a breeding adult that isn't um, replaced, they quite happily go for 20 years without breeding. Wow. You know, so they, they, they don't feel this compulsion to churn youngsters out. Um, in captivity, absolutely, they breed. Breed every year because there's a good steady supply of food. Um, But generally, you know, just as and when the season is good, there's no point putting in about six months of the year is, is involved in the breeding process, getting the nest ready, courtship behavior, nest lining, a 37 day incubation, three months until the chick leaves the nest. So it's half the year gone. And, you know, if it's not going to be worth it, if the bush isn't teeming with food, they don't, they're not, they're not going to commit to that. That's, that's,
0: that's incredible. I mean, that's not even, I'm trying to think of mammal species besides us humans, but that don't, yeah. such a huge gap in between Rear And here you're talking about a bird. So when you lose a family group or, or a breeding pair or, or breeding female, it really hurts them compared to a lot yeah. of
1: Yeah. I mean, totally. We, we think of the groups in our landscape, like candles flickering. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we are just starting to see the lights go out essentially as we lose them. And the more groups, contiguous groups, you lose, the less chance there is of dispersals, finding other groups um, to get their own chance to enter that breeding role of being one of the alphas. Um, So, yeah, I guess our job is keeping the lights on.
0: yeah. It's just, all right. So, so that's laid out. (laughs) (laughs) your <laughs> <the southern laughs> ground hornbill and, and the issues that it's facing it's just it's just fascinating birds birds are fascinating they're just every time we cover one it just their stories and this one particularly is just wow so the Mabula ground hornbill project i guess what's the history of that when did this start and what's the mission of the project
1: um, so the, the project got set up in 1999. The founder was Anne Turner. Um, and at that stage, my dad had been kind of fiddling with whether you can harvest these second hatch chicks. Is it feasible? Can you rear them? And then if you can, what are you going to do with them? Um, and Anne had just retired to Mubula, Um, And she had gone down to one of our captive facilities and seen a showbird there. Um, fell in love with this long lashed... <laughs> beast Um, we call them aging showgirls I'm one of these aging showgirls and um, you know she came back to Mabula and started asking around why are they not here you know this is good good bush good habitat where are they and through her research she got in touch with my dad who had three birds ready to go Um, and so that was basically the project formed around being a single reintroduction site Um, But then over the years has just grown, Um, you know, we basically have six focal areas that we work on now. We work across South Africa and increasingly we're working across our borders. Um, We've learnt a lot of things the hard way and I would hate for any of our neighbouring range states to have to waste any time or resources um, going through that same learning process so we're doing a lot of sharing um having uh, hosting and facilitating conservation planning workshops so Zimbabwe's on board and and hopefully this year uh, Namibia and Botswana as well and then collectively we can try and do something to to make things better
0: right do you find do you find it hard because especially as you know being an American even though I'm living in New Zealand competing with because, you, like you said earlier, funding—it's it, just—it's—it's it's so difficult in conservation. You know, you're really depending on external resources a lot of the times, and like the Whitley Fund for Nature. You know, they gave you money to do a project, but do, are you finding it hard in Africa to compete with the elephants, the rhinos, you know, all the the, the megafauna that get a lot of the press?
1: Absolutely. You yeah. know, and if anything, ground hornbills are more endangered um, than a number of those big ones. And so we're trying to make them as sexy and as cool <laughs> um, in the hope we can attract the same sort of love and attention and cash, I guess, right. um, you know, and... We, we've, I've got an amazing team, and we're doing a lot of capacity building. You know, building the future conservationists of of Southern Africa, and the more resources we can put into them, I think better outcomes down the line for a bunch of species. Um, but absolutely, I mean, it's ongoing. We're a small nonprofit organization. Um, but we make it every year. We didn't lose any of our team during COVID. I mean, obviously like everyone else, we we took a big financial hit, um, but we're still here and we're still working um, and the team remains committed. So, you know, we will, and, and also I think because we know the tools that we've developed work, um, I think that hope that we can actually turn it around for the species is what keeps us going. Is it,
0: so can I ask, it, you know, since you're on the ground there, what is going on in in Southern Africa with COVID as far as effects on tourism, you know, not only conservation, conservation dollars, you know, we're hearing stories of poaching, but poaching of, you know, animals to feed families, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not the typical, Oh, rhino horn or or elephant ivory. It's, it's more like people are are hungry. So what's kind of on the truth on the ground there?
1: things are tough uh we're very far behind on the vaccine schedule um today is our second day of our vaccination rollout um other than the health workers and are we working on our elderly um tourism has taken a major hit and tourism actually supports a lot of our conservation work because you know the the, the the lodges support the reserves um and the reserves in turn support the animals that are on them um so definitely that's taken a big hit uh, and, and a lot of government funding is obviously being pushed into vaccine procurements um, and and just social packages. You know, people are starving under this COVID regime. So, you know, I think if people are poaching for food, uh, they they must do what they must. Um, you know, I think these are extraordinary times, um, and we just have to try and keep momentum through that. Um, but yeah. I mean I I it's tough but but I think everyone's committed to continuing. Um most of my colleagues uh, yeah we just we're carrying on yeah. <laughs> um, and we'll carry on regardless. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not easy. And, you know, again, that whole discrepancy of vaccine rollouts across the world, um, we would love to <laughs> see more of the vaccines down here. I mean, it's probably going to be 2025 before I get mine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's, it's okay. Um, as long as the vulnerable get vaccinated, and then everyone can get back to doing what we need to do.
0: Right, right. I mean, even here in New Zealand, it, it's very slow. Australia and New Zealand, it's been very slow. So so I understand that. And even New Zealand being a, dependent on tourism, a lot of people are suffering. You know, not like in Africa, but still. So I, I, I really want to ask about this project that you did get some funding for, thank goodness, for these birds. And it's the community-based approach to conserve the southern ground hornbill. Can you talk about... I guess the genesis of that project and, and what it is. I'm excited about it because I feel like this is a where conservation's going and where it needs to go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for the longest time, research into ground hornbills in South Africa was um, looking into our national parks. Um, where obviously none of the none of the human threats are, um, and I think once we started. Changing our focus and our gaze, and looking into the other parts of the country where the birds were, we found some striking differences and similarities. So, in areas where there's strong cultural protection, the birds in some places of higher density than in our biggest national parks. Um, In in habitat that looks awful, you know, it's full of alien investors, it's overgrazed by the cattle, but actually in Grand terms, that's awesome habitat. Big, huge open plains to forage in and some safe places to nest, and the people you share the land with don't want to hurt you. Um, And so there was that. And then in areas where that traditional belief has become eroded or on commercial farmland where there isn't that inherent protection the birds are are pretty much absent or highly fragmented across the landscape. So we realized that, you know, it's not something like vultures where if you protect the breeding colony, you can protect hundreds of a species. We literally have to go group by group by group because they resident on their territories. And the only way to do that is engaging with the people that share the land with each and every one of those groups. Um, so that was kind of the genesis. How on earth are we going to try and figure that out? Um, and so we're going to do that in two ways. Um, one is through a custodianship program. So where the nests are, that whoever owns the land where a nest is, are the people that we primarily engage with. Um, we work with them to mitigate for the threats. We do training of all of their staff, and, and we support them with whatever comes up. So if, if hornbills have broken the factory windows, cool, let's see if we can get funding to try and fix that or advise you to fix it, you know, to cover the windows before they break the windows. Um, and, and then also with a nest, if, say, an elephant knocks a tree down or there's strong winds or a big fire and you lose your nesting tree, how can we support you to replace that nest before the next breeding season so we don't miss a beat? Mm-hmm. Um, and so through the provision of nests, that means we can absolutely support the productivity. And and the key thing there is wooden nest boxes, artificial nest boxes, work great. hornbills love them. They breed in them. They fledge successfully but they rot after eight to 10 years. And that's just totally unsustainable for a tiny NGO to try and run around the country, replacing all of those every decade. Um, So we started experimenting with artificial materials. um, And the more we got into that, the more we were thinking about the microclimate within these nests, the more we were thinking about climate change. And we realized that actually the nests we're building today have to be able to support and protect the embryos in those eggs 40, 50, 60 years from now, when our temperatures are not going to be what they are now mm-hmm. and already we're starting to see signs of embryo death when we have heat waves of 40 45 degrees um and so you know these are the things that we've tried to build into this project going forward it's yeah some kind of future proofing
0: right oh just it made me think of the african penguins and the, the artificial nests that they're building down there you know for mm-hmm. them and, and the heat and and things like that oh it's just wow so Getting communities involved, I, you know, highlighting that is that the future survival for the the southern ground hornbill. Like getting locals involved, because looking at the globe and looking at conservation efforts, it's it's no longer you know the rich nations going throwing money at a problem and saying oh, okay, fix it. It's getting on the ground, getting the locals buy-in getting the locals behind it that is where we're seeing success you know with conservation in africa and asia and in, in south america you know even in in north america so your project aims to, to go and, and engage communities right with education and then also citizen science scientists so yeah
1: so, so- in science absolutely. Um, they're low-density, naturally don't low density occurring birds, so really tricky to try and census. Um, so we need not just the birders on the ground, but everyone on the ground reporting when they see birds. So we have WhatsApp groups. Um, We've got about 50 of them in the country so far. And we've had, in just a year, we've already had less, where are we now? May, five months into the year, um, we've had a 49% resighting of all of our uh, um, pentads. Um, so, So we need people to help us monitor, but also if we can't protect them where they are, we are gonna lose them. So if the people who share the land with them aren't going to protect them, our national parks aren't big enough to to maintain viable populations. So we have to engage with communities, again, through the custodianship program um, on communally managed areas. We work with the traditional authority councils, with the Royal Houses, um, and, and they have to become part of our team. And I guess us in turn, part of theirs. Um, the other thing with the communities is there's so much learning for us to do from those communities. You know, there's so much indigenous knowledge around the species, and we would be so stupid if we didn't take that into account, fully understand it and find ways and opportunity within that to strengthen the support that the communities can give to their own birds. So, so that's another big part of this project going forward is documenting all the songs all the stories you know there's just so much beautiful history associated with these birds and how can we take that and use that as a conservation tool
0: that's amazing it's amazing work it's amazing work so what are some of the other research projects you're involved with right now
1: sure (laughs) here's a long list (laughs) where do
0: i start Um,
1: well, I've just come off a three-hour call. Um, you know, the lead is, is a really big problem in South Africa. Um, so we're looking at some of the behavior change um, issues about how we can get people in South Africa who use lead um, mm-hmm. on board to look at alternatives. Um, we, With that, then we're doing some uh, trials on chelation therapy. So if we do get a ground hornbill in that has lead toxicosis, mm-hmm. what's the best, safest way of rehabilitating that bird and getting it back out into the wild? Um, we do a lot of work on the diseases, so Newcastle's disease, avian influenza, uh, we developed a vaccine for ground hornbills, so the birds that we reintroduce are vaccinated before they go out, um, and we're going to start looking at trials that if there's a major outbreak in, say, Kruger, can we get out there and vaccinate at least a portion of the of the population um, before that, that outbreak takes hold. Um <laughs> it's ongoing education, <clears throat> excuse me, we're looking at um ways of actually aside from the reintroductions, expanding the range um and so I've got an mSC student working on that. and um, yeah, what else have we got on the go? A lot, a lot. <laughs> yeah. uh, my research called just shouts at me because I keep coming back with new ideas of things that we have to try and tackle
0: right, 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 right. So uh, my podcasting partner is. She- she is just kind of, out of obscure. Can you make a ground hornbill call? Can you do that? No. I, yeah. I, no. To, I told her, am like, she's like, ask that. I'm like, All right, I'll ask that. No. <laughs> but what? I, no. One of the other questions she had was what are some of your favorite behaviors of these birds?
1: They're playing um they the adults and the youngsters play and in some respects their behavior is so much more primate than it is avian mm-hmm. um the learning the social learning i mean watching a brand new youngster follow the alpha male if he looks left the youngster looks left if he looks right the youngster looks right i just think there's so much inherent playfulness and cheekiness in them mm-hmm. um and they can be a right nuisance if they want to be um but they're just so smart you know they there's something going on in a group at any any stage like you without chuckling or yeah, no, they're just, they're, they're an endlessly interesting species, which
0: I mean, it's because bird, it's just their, their behavior. They're fascinating. They're fascinating they deserve our respect, our protection, and, and people like you out there in the world fighting for them. So thank you for what you do. It's, we call you conservation heroes because each of your stories for each of these species, you know, it, it, it really gives us hope for the future of the planet, even though we're seeing this great decline, what does the future look like for them going forward?
1: If we can get the people who share the land with them on board, it looks beautiful Mm -hmm. um, is the short answer. The tools work um, people have an inherent love of them anyway. They know them; um, they've grown up with them. And you know, we speak to some some of the elders in a village, and when you put their their age into perspective, they realise that the alpha male of the group that they see every day was probably a chick when they were young boys. Mm-hmm. And and once you can make those links and just see how similar they are to us, um, it's it's yeah, it, it's 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 an easy conversation to have, and people have so much more empathy. For them, when they have that kind of link,
0: right, right, right. So, with the the Whitley Fund for Nature, who else are you working with? Anybody else you want to recognize?
1: Millions. (laughs) Uh, millions yeah, list, yeah. <laughs> um ground hornbills is is absolutely a team effort um you know there's my team um obviously um and but then there's all of the the greater southern ground humble working group in south africa um everyone who's chipping away at, at different bits and pieces of, of the puzzle helping us understand them better helping us get education out there helping us with funding um and just you know trying to collectively pull that together um and then you know just so many collaborators in South Africa, all of our national parks, our provincial parks, um, our private reserves, uh, all of our zoos, our academic institutes. You know, it's it really, you know, they say it takes a village to rear a child. Um I think it's going to take the whole damn lot of us um to try and and do things for these birds. And st- so although, you know, we off in the face of it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a much bigger picture. And there's a lot of people working away to try and make a future for the species.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's wonderful that there are people out there, you know, working hard for them. So what's in, I want to say, you mentioned you're, you're going out in the field. So I guess if I can ask what you're going to be doing, like, what's your average day look like, like what you're doing out there? Yeah.
1: My my average day is sitting in front of my computer <laughs> trying to phase fundraise so that I can pay my team to go and do fun stuff. Um, but I am being let out of my box tomorrow. Um I'm I'm looking at a couple of new rental sites in Marikele National Park. Um so we're gonna look at um, a couple of areas that they think might be good potential habitat um and just chat through what the logistics of that might look like and start putting together some sort of framework for how we're gonna take that forward because that park. Could hold another two groups Um, and so we've got these two big core areas in South Africa um, that we're trying to close these gaps so there's you know from us here on Mabula all the way through to Marakele and then the other big one is northern Zululand because there's this huge gap in the gene flow now between Kruger National Park and all of the population south of that so you know we're going to try and use the reintroductions to strategically plug some of these gaps in the landscape
0: that it's yeah i remember talking to uh julian fennessy with the giraffe conservation foundation and i think that's what he said as he did was fundraise 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 it's just you know a few of the it's just it's hard you know you got to pay for this and it and it's hard so how can our listeners help you you know what could they do you know obviously probably go to the website we'll definitely link that i don't know if you have any social media accounts we could follow but how else can they help the Southern Groundhornbill?
1: Um cool. Yeah, absolutely. Please. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, I'm Busy Learning Clubhouse <laughs> as I go <laughs> forward. Um, and um, so if you live on the app African continent and you share your face with ground hornbill sighting records especially for areas outside of protected areas those records for us are like gold because they are the founding basis for how we make our decisions for the species um if you live outside of the range of the species and you would like to fund our work that would be awesome or just help us share spread the word you know if you have friends or family who thinks who might be interested in this crazy cool bird um please share i think that would be the coolest thing
0: yeah i know well you know thank i know you're busy i know you're not, especially the after getting this big award i mean it's it's a it's a big deal it's, it's a really big deal and you know your your video that you know sir david attenborough narrates i'm like oh my gosh it's <laughs> no. a great honor it's a great I've, honor
1: i've had i've had so many friends recommend that i make that my ring <laughs> you You know just yeah you know just to hear David Attenborough talk about the project is beyond my wildest dreams oh
0: I I can only imagine I can only imagine and it's just I I just have to say thank you thank you for what what you're doing because yes elephants and some of these more charismatic megafauna get the press but when you have a bird like this that is in severe decline and your parents and now you and all the team behind you that you work with, you're making a difference. You just don't know it. You know, you're you're making a difference. It's hard when you're, I've, I've been there doing the research, you know, you're you're blinded because you're so busy. But from an outsider's perspective, I just have to say thank you on behalf of our listeners. Thank you for what you do.
1: That's awesome. Thanks very much.
0: Well, I'm going to let you go so you can warm up in cold South Africa. So it's hard to imagine South <laughs> Africa cold Well, I'm freezing here in New Zealand.
1: Uh, no, I'm in scarf, scarf and and, yeah.
0: That's going to be me <laughs> as I go. <laughs> <fun> I'm <in
1: summer. laughs>
0: we'll all bundled up as I go to sleep.
1: Uh, but, uh, thank you, Chris. Um, yeah. Every little bit that helps us get the word out is magic
0: yeah no for sure for sure we will definitely be pushing this and pushing you know to our listeners and everybody around the world but dr lucy kemp project manager mabula ground hornbill project congratulations on the the prestigious award and we're going to keep following you and your group's work but thank you so much for spending the time to talk to us today that's awesome
1: thanks and to all of your listeners thank you